Well, good morning, Tri-Cities Baptist Church, and it is an honor to be here with you today. Let me just say a quick word. There's so many things I could say about Southeastern Seminary that I think would encourage and bless you. But one of the things that we are emphasizing more and more is training women uh, for the assignment that God has for them. And many times I have ladies say to me, I wish I could come to Southeastern, but I've got a family. I'm, I'm located where I am. Well, here's the good news. We'll bring education to you. Uh, you go back outside uh, when the service is over, Victor from our school is out there, and I'm holding a brochure that says Biblical Women's Institute, and it points out that you can do a certificate degree in women's studies, and you don't have to leave your home. We bring all of it to you. Uh, you can take classes in Old Testament, classes in New Testament, classes in theology, classes in speaking, and the other good thing about it is each class is $25. So if you're a lady at home and you just say, well, look, I want to be better equipped to raise my children. I want to be better equipped to serve here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. Uh, we're glad to help you in that kind of a way. So just know that not only do people come to Wake Forest, we have now about 5,800 students uh, overall. We have about 4,000 that are on our campus, but we have almost 2,000 students literally scattered around the world and across uh, the United States. So if you're interested in doing more, uh, we've got something that I believe will fit uh, for you. I want you to take your Bible and join me this morning in the book of Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Ephesians chapter six. And this morning I want to talk to you on the subject, God's guidelines for growing your children or how to love your children and let them know it. God's guidelines for growing your children or how to love your children and let them know it. We noted yesterday in our seminar that the most detailed passage in the Bible concerning what God says about marriage and family is found in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22, and going through chapter 6 and verse 4. And this is what God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, says to us about marriage and also now family and children. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. When I was growing up, there was a lady on television that soon became known as the queen of comedy. This lady's name was Lucille Ball. Now, if you're in my uh, age bracket, you immediately know who I'm talking about. Some of you that are younger may not know of her, and yet her reruns of her show, I Love Lucy, has been on television now for many, many years, even though she passed away more than 30 years ago. Interestingly, just before she died, she was interviewed on television in the late 1980s by a man named Merv Griffin. And in that interview, Merv Griffin asked Lucy a series of very interesting and I would argue also very important questions. Lucille, you've lived a long time on this earth and you are a wise person. What's happened to our country? What's wrong with our children? Why are our families falling apart? Remember, this is 1989 and he's asking questions like this. Why are our families falling apart? What's missing? And to those series of questions, Lucille Ball simply and quickly said this, Papa's missing. Things are falling apart because Papa's gone. If Papa were here, 
He could fix it. Lucy was right. In 1960, only 18% of children in America lived in a home separated from their biological father. Today, 2021, more than 40% of all the children in America live in a home where their daddy is not there. Yes, in far too many homes today, Papa is missing. And yet there's another tragedy that comes alongside this. And this tragedy sometimes even afflicts Christian families because sometimes in the home, though daddy is there physically, he's not there. He's tuned out. He's checked out. He doesn't really have a clue about what is going on in the lives of his children. Several years ago, a young lady wrote a letter to Seventeen Magazine. She was about to graduate from high school, and it's one of the most powerful things I've ever read that I think unfortunately expresses the heartache and the sorrow and the disappointment of far too many children in our nation today. Here's what she wrote. Have you ever heard of a father who won't talk to his daughter? My father doesn't seem to know I'm alive. In my whole life, he has never said he loves me or given me a goodnight kiss unless I asked him to. I think the reason he ignores me is because I'm so boring. I look at my friends and think if I were funny like Jill or a super brain like Sandy or even outrageous and punk like Tasha, he would put down his paper and be fascinated. I play the recorder. And for the past three years, I've been a soloist in the fall concert at school. Mom always comes to the concerts, but Dad, he never does. This year, I'm a senior. It's his last chance. I'd give anything to look out into the audience and see him there, but who am I kidding? It will never happen. Now, parents, I don't want to overstate things this morning. I don't like people that exaggerate, but I want to tell you something. I believe this with all of my heart. For children, knowing that your mom and dad care and knowing that your mom and dad will be there when you need them sometimes can even be the difference between life and death for that child. Several years ago, Focus on the Family carried a remarkable story that illustrates what I'm trying to say. It's a story about the way that a dad's love for his daughter literally saved her life. And so before we get to the biblical text, just listen to this remarkable event that took place. One day, a father took his two elementary school-aged children for a ride in a pontoon boat. They were traveling down the river when suddenly the motor stopped. When the father looked behind him, he noticed something familiar about the red sweater tangled up in the propeller. His young son began to yell. Sherry fell in. In horror, the father saw his little girl entwined in the propeller of the boat. She was submerged just beneath the surface of the water, looking straight into the eyes of her daddy and holding her breath. He jumped into the water and tried to pull the motor up, but the heavy engine would not budge, and time was now running out. Desperately, the father filled his own lungs with air and dipped below the surface, blowing air into his daughter's lungs. After giving her air three different times, the father took a knife from his shocked son's hand. He quickly cut the red sweater from the propeller, and he lifted his daughter back into the boat. 
Although she had survived, her deep cuts and bruises needed medical attention, so they rushed her to the hospital. But when the crisis was over, the doctors and nurses came into the little girl's room, and they asked her this simple question, how come you didn't panic? Well, she said, we've run up on the river, and my daddy always taught us that if you panic, you could die. And besides, I knew my daddy, he would come and get me. Now, parents, do your kids know that? Let me say it to you this way. If your children did something that broke your heart, did something that disappointed you beyond measure, if they asked and if they called out, Mama, Daddy, would you come and get them? You see, here's my thesis as I prepare to go into God's Word today. I believe almost all parents love their children. That's not the issue. The issue is, do your children know and feel that you love them? I know. Almost all parents love their children. That is not the issue. The issue is, do your children feel loved by the things you say and also the things you do? So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to quickly walk through Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, laying a biblical and theological foundation. And then after that, I'm going to be very, very practical and draw from the totality of God's Word and just share some things that my wife Charlotte and I have learned over the years from God's Word and experience that I think gets us down the road in loving well the children that God has given us. So note with me, first of all, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, the Bible says this, we love our children by educating them. We love our children by educating them. And Paul says, first of all, in verse 1, it is the proper thing to do. Look at chapter 6 again and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That word obey, by the way, is an imperative. It's a word of command. God is not asking or suggesting. God commands children, you obey mom and dad. It's also in the present tense, which means this is to be the, the pattern or the habit of your child's life. In other words, parents, from the time your children are small, you should impart to them the expectation of their obedience. Now, are they going to disobey? Of course they are. Children are little, little sinners like you and I are big sinners, all right? So they're going to disobey. Uh, they're going to do sinful things, but the, the pattern and the expectation ought to be that you will obey mom and dad. So the Bible says, children, obey your parents. Now, here's the key. It's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. In other words, help your children understand when you obey mom and dad, you're actually obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul mentioned a moment ago that God blessed my wife and me with four sons. They're grown now. But as our boys were growing up, we always tried to help them understand. Ultimately, your obedience or your disobedience, it's not against me. It's not against your mama. It's before the Lord. And when you obey me and when you obey your mom, you are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's in the Lord. But then he says, secondly, this is right. This is the way God planned it. This is the way God ordained the structure of the family. But now, parents, listen to me. It's not enough just to tell our kids what to do. I believe good parents help their kids understand why. Why? Why should I follow this path? Why should I go down this road and not this one over here? And so Paul, being the theologian that he is, goes back to the Ten Commandments. By the way, they're found twice in the Old Testament. 
First in Exodus chapter 20, then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And here's what the Bible says. There's a promise. There is a promise to children who obey mom and dad. And now he adds the idea of honoring mom and dad. Look at verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. By the way, that word honor, an imperative, word of command. So God commands obey. God commands honor, present tense. So this is something you're to continually do as a habit of life. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that, and there's two aspects to the promise. Number one, you're going to have a better life, that it may go well with you. And secondly, you will most likely, almost certainly have a longer life, that you may live long in the land. Now, this is not an absolute ironclad promise, but it's a general promise. And what he's saying is this, you obey mom and dad. You honor mom and dad, and God will honor you with a better life and a longer life. Now, some of you may be here this morning, and you would say, well, Danny, hold on, time out. These are great uh, words if you have a good dad and a good mom. But if you knew the hell on earth I grew up in, if you met my dad or my mom, you would have to acknowledge these words are not for me. These are words for good homes. These are words for children with good parents, but these are not words that fit my situation. In fact, some of you might draw the conclusion this morning, you don't have a clue what some of us have experienced because you grew up in a good home, didn't you? And the fact of the matter is, you'd be halfway correct. I did grow up in a good home, had a good dad, a wonderful mom. I have no complaints about how Lowell and Emma Lou Aiken took care of me. They fed me. They gave me a bedroom. They came to my ball games. My mom and dad were great. But God in his providence gave me a wife who had exactly the opposite experience of me. You see, my wife Charlotte was born into the home of alcoholic parents. And when she was nine years old, after her parents had divorced, she, along with her brother and sister, were placed in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home, where she would live from the time she was nine until she was 18. During those years, she never saw her parents. In fact, when we began to date, she was not even sure that her mother was even alive. In fact, we were driving one day from Louisville, Kentucky, when I was at Southern Seminary down to Nashville. I remember it very clearly. We'd, we'd been married over 25 years. And as we were driving down, we were just talking about family. And, and so I got back and I said, well, honey, uh, what was the situation or, or what happened the last time you saw your mom before you went to the children's home? And she got kind of quiet and a tear began to run down her face. And she said, well, we were over at my daddy's before they were coming to pick us up to take us to the children's home. And mama was there too. And I was sitting out, and this is not why it's here. I, I'm recovering from knee replacement surgery, but I, I can't help. I can't sit down, so we're just going to put it over here. But anyway, she was sitting on a bench like this out on the front porch. And the last time she saw her mother, her mother walked out, slapped her in the face, knocked her out in the front yard and said, all of this is your fault, you little blank. Turned around, walked back into the house. She would not see her mother again until she was 17 years old. Her daddy came to see her once in the first month that she was in the children's home. She would not see her daddy again until after we were married. In fact, I was standing beside her in my mom and dad's home when she got on the phone and called her daddy. And I only heard the one side of it, but it went like this. And this is almost verbatim. Hey, daddy, 
I got some wonderful news. I'm getting married. And I want you to give me away. Got real quiet on her end. Tears began to run down her face. And I remember her saying, well, Daddy, I know you're shy. So if you don't want to give me away, that's okay. I just want you to come to my wedding. And even though he only lived about 10 miles away, he didn't come. I remember the first time I met her father. We, had, we were living in Dallas, Texas, but we'd come back to Atlanta for Christmas. She'd reestablished a relationship with her mom, and her dad came for Christmas dinner. So we had dinner, and then afterwards we took him back to the Veterans Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, where he was again going through a detox treatment for his alcoholism. And I, and I have to be honest with you folks, I didn't act very nicely that evening. I, I was angry with him. I was mad about the way that he had treated my wife. In fact, he walked over to me, and, and you need to understand, her daddy was not a mean drunk. He was kind of a, a, a weepy kind of drunk. And so he comes over, puts his hand on my forearm, and says, I just want to I just want to tell you I'm sorry, and I shouldn't have done this, but I yanked my arm away, and I said, don't put your hands on me. You don't need to apologize to me. You need to apologize to her. And he turned and walked the other way. So as we let him off at the Veterans Hospital, again, insensitive, acting like an idiot, I looked at my wife, and I said, you know, your dad's sorry. He ain't worth much. And she looked at me, and I'll never forget. She said, again, tears just streaming. Well, he may be, but he is still my daddy, and I will always love him. Unless something happened on his deathbed that we don't know, her daddy died lost. He died lost because of alcohol. He died lost, never telling his daughter he loved her. And yet in all the years we've been married, I've never, even one time, heard my wife say anything ugly about her dad or her mom. Her mom's ending is a little bit happier. We were in Wake Forest now uh, at Southeastern. Got a phone call from her sister informing. This is how dysfunctional her family still is. Get a phone call from her sister who says, we just thought we ought to let you know, mom's been in the hospital for three weeks. And uh, she's in the ICU unit, and they don't think she's going to live. And we need you to agree to sign off on a non-resuscitation order. Well, Charlotte said to her sister, I, I, I can't do that right now. And so she hung up the phone and she looked at me and again she said, it, it's, it's hardly more than I can bear to think of my mother dying without Jesus. And so we got on our knees and we prayed. And then she looked at me and she said, honey, do you, do you think James Merritt, now many of you would not know that name, but James Merritt is a pastor in Atlanta. He's former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, he's a big dog, pastor of a big church. He's also one of my closest friends. She said, you think he'd go share the gospel with mama? And I said, well, I think if I called him and asked him, he would. So I called him, and he said, well, Danny, I'll be glad to. He said, I I'm leaving town in the morning. This is on a Tuesday. But when I get back on Thursday, I'll be glad to go see Charlotte's mama. And I said, well, James, I would appreciate it. I said, she she's really sick. They don't even know how long she's going to live. Uh, so we got off the phone, and we prayed again and went out and had dinner. I took her out for dinner. And while we were sitting there, Dr. Merritt called me back. And he said, you know, I... Uh, I don't think I need to wait till Thursday. I'm going to go see her now. He drove 45 miles up into Cula to downtown Atlanta to Grady Hospital, went up in the ICU unit, shared the gospel with Charlotte's mother, and on her deathbed, literally, she asked the Lord Jesus to come into her life and save her. She died just a couple of days later.
And I'm absolutely convinced that when I get to heaven, there's going to be a lady there named Dealey Ramsey. And she will be there because she had a daughter, my wife, who never stopped loving her mother, never stopped praying for her mother, never stopped honoring her mother. And folks, I want to tell you something. God kept his word. I'm married to a wonderful lady. In fact, I would say this morning to all of you with great pride, my wife is one of my heroes. She is godly. She is kind. Everybody that knows her loves her. I mean, I got great job security at Southeastern. They're going to keep me to keep her. I mean, they're not going to run me off because then they'd lose Charlotte. And people just love her. And you see, even though she was born into hell on earth, to the best of her ability, she obeyed God's word and God kept his word. And so the Bible says we love our children by educating them. We also love our children, the Bible says, by encouraging them. Look at what it says there in verse 4. Fathers, now it's not excluding the mothers, but gentlemen, it is a reminder again that God calls you and me to the leadership assignment in the home. Fathers, do not provoke, do not agitate your children, pushing them toward anger, but rather bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. He begins with a negative idea, but then moves to a positive idea. Fathers, don't provoke, don't agitate your children. Don't give your kids a, an unsettling kind of situation where they never know what dad is going to do. They, they see dad come through the door. Are you going to hug them or slap them? Is he going to be kind to them or yell at them? No, don't do that. Do not provoke your children toward anger, but rather be their primary teacher. Bring them up in the discipline and the teachings, the instruction of the Lord. Now, I know what some of you parents are thinking. Kids don't listen to mom and dad. Kids don't listen to mom and dad. Danny, you're, you have a Ph.D., haven't you read the data? Uh, all of the experts tell us that kids are far more influenced by peer pressure than they are by parental guidance and instruction. And I don't want to be unkind this morning to the, to the experts, but they're idiots. They are absolutely bonkers because they do not know what they're talking about. You say, can you back that up? Let me give it a shot. The largest survey ever of teenagers in the history of the world took place at the very end of the last century, the last, uh, the, the last decade, well, two decades ago now, 1998. They asked teenagers a boatload of questions and got a lot of interesting answers, but this one stood out. In fact, it stood out to such a degree, Newsweek magazine reported on it, quote, in a recent national survey, teenagers named their parents as their number one heroes. Do you hear that? Hey, guys, who's your hero? Movie star? Nope. Rock star? Nope. Athlete? Nope. Politician? Are you kidding me? I'm just playing now. If you're in politics and you love Jesus, praise God for you. But no, 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 no. Who's my hero? It's my dad and my mom. They asked him another question. If you were stranded on a desert island, and you could have only one thing. What one thing would you want? Well, here were their answers. 10% said, I'd want a TV. But what you do with a TV on a stranded desert island, I just don't know, but I'll just not think more about that. That doesn't encourage me, by the way. But TV, 15% said a book. 21% said a computer. 24% said music. But the number one answer was, if I'm stranded on a desert island, I get one thing, that's easy. I want my dad and I want my mom. 
See, here's the deal, parents. You listen to me. Your kids do care what you think. They do listen to what you say. And they pay a whole lot of attention to what you do. So, for the remainder of my time, and I'm going to move very fast, so you're going to have to listen in a hurry, I just want to throw out for you some things, just common sense Bible things that I think you and I need to be saying and doing that let our kids know that we love them. So, here we go. Number one, you love your kids by getting down on their level and entering into their world. You step back and you ask, how does my 5-year-old, my 10-year-old, my 15-year-old, my 18-year-old, Given their sex, given their personality, given their interests, given their friends, how do they look at life? And you love them well by entering in to their world. Now, I want to be fair to parents. Saying it is easier than doing it. It is not always easy to get into the world of a child. I heard about a little boy. His turtle died, broke his heart, cried all day. He's about five years old. Dad got home from work, and Mom said, Honey, he's been in the backyard all day crying. Turtle's dead. Go see what you can do. So dad goes back, and sure enough, the turtle's not moving. The little boy's crying, and so he begins to rack his brain. He says, well, son, I tell you what, I'm sorry your turtle died, but I tell you what, let's have a turtle funeral, and let's celebrate your turtle going to turtle heaven, or wherever they go, but let's celebrate them going to turtle heaven. I'm going to get a box. I'm going to stick him in the shoebox. We're going to dig a hole, and we're going to bury your your turtle right back here in our backyard. He'll always be back here. And I tell you what, since we're going to have a little funeral service for your turtle, I'll, I'll bring a little message, and you can invite all your friends over for your turtle's funeral. And um, i tell you what, since we're celebrating his going to turtle heaven, let's have a party. I'll get your mama to make a cake. I'll make some homemade ice cream and your friends, and we'll just have a party to celebrate your turtle's funeral. And after that, if there's time, we'll go down to the park, and we'll ride the rides and take our baseball and bat. And so what do you think if we do all that? Well, he's still crying, but he says, we can have a party. We can have a party. And I can invite all my, every one of them. And mom, mom will make a cake. I'll make ice cream. We'll do all that to celebrate your turtle's funeral. The tears stopped. And a little smile came across his face, and he said to daddy, well, daddy, that, that'll be okay. And boy, dad felt great. He'd save the day. Took his son by the hand. They began to walk back to the house. And can you believe it? At exactly that moment, suddenly, out of that shell, boom, comes that turtle's head. And he begins to look around and check everything out, and and Dad saw it, and Dad said, well, son, look, your turtle, he's alive. He's not dead after all. The little boy, he began to scream and cry, kill him, Daddy, kill him. I want to have my party. Now, that may not make sense to a 64-year-old. That makes all the sense in the world to a five-year-old little boy. So I'm just telling you, it may not be easy, but if you're going to love them, well, listen, I call that incarnational parenting. You say, why? How do we know this morning that God loves us? I'll tell you exactly how we know. He got down on our level and entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we know the Father loves us. Number two, you love your kids by loving your mate. By just loving your mate. In fact, listen to me. If you just love your mate, you will give your kids 95% of all that they need. Why? Because the number one need in the life of a child related to love is security. And nothing brings security in the life of a child like knowing my dad loves my mom, my mom loves my dad, and they're always going to be here for me. And so if you will just love your mate, 
you will give your kids about 95% of all that they need. Number three, you love your kids by giving them discipline. They come into the world screaming, where are the boundaries? What's right? What's wrong? Now, I don't claim to be an expert here. Charlotte and I did the best we could by the seat of our pants, but I'll share a couple of things that we learned along the way that I think can be helpful to you. Number one, now listen to me, give your kids a big playing field and not a little box to live in. Big playing field, not a little box. You say why? Two things. Number one, if you say to your children, you must live in the little box all the time, they won't. They can't. You say, well, why not? Because they're kids. And this much I do know. God did not design little boys to live in a little box. Mamas with boys, amen? Amen. They're not going to be able to do that. Secondly, and this is equally crucial, you won't be consistent in your discipline. You won't be consistent. And here's the deal, parents. Listen to me. Draw the lines where the lines need to be drawn. And then you must be rigorously consistent in your discipline. Now, again, I'm not claiming this is always the best way, but I think it is. I had a one-strike policy. One strike. I told them to do something. They messed up. I gave them one chance. After that, judgment fell. So I'll give you an example. We had a rule at our house when my boys were little. You cannot go into the bathroom without mom and dad. You say, why? Because Nathan, my older twin, went in there one day, got a bottle of Camphophonique and swallowed it. So what'd you do? We took him to the hospital. That hospital said, well, we can't treat this. They sent us over to Parkland. We were living in Dallas. Parkland Memorial, where John Kennedy was taken when he got shot and was assassinated. So we go over there to the pediatric trauma unit. We sit there from 6 o'clock in the evening till 1 o'clock in the morning. Finally, we see a doctor, 1 o'clock. He says, well, when did he swallow this stuff? We said, 5 o'clock. Well, if nothing's happened by now, he's fine. Y'all can go home. And I had to pay for that, by the way. They charged us. I'm still mad about that. But anyway... So I decided, we said, you can't go in the bathroom without mom and dad's permission. So one day, his brother, Jonathan, the other twin, walks into the bedroom and walks, and I'm not going to fall off, walks right over to the edge of the bathroom tile and the bedroom carpet, and he's like four years old, and looks up at me and just like a little boy, just grins and smiles, and I said, son, you know the rule. If you go into that bathroom, you're going to get a spanking. He looks at me, grins, and does this. Boop, boop. He says, oh, that's so cute. What'd you do? I tore his little tail off. That's exactly what I did. Because I told him, you go into the bathroom, you will get a spanking. And so you've got to be consistent in the way you discipline. Let me say one other thing and I'll move on. I believe we discipline our children all the days they're under our watch care. But I believe we adjust the way we discipline as they grow older. And here's why I think that. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 15, the rod and the rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself will bring shame to his mother. Here's Danny Aiken's commentary. The rod, when they're young, the rebuke as they grow older gives wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You say, come on, Danny, this is the year 2021. You still think it's all right to spank a child? I don't think it's all right. I think sometimes it's absolutely essential. I just do. Listen, I said again, I have a Ph.D. All that means is I went to school a long time, not that I'm very smart, but I have a Ph.D. My, my minor's in philosophy. I took classes in logic and argumentation. So I had my boys when they were little, and I could give them what I knew was an ironclad, infallible argument about their behavior, and for some reason they just didn't get it. 
But when I got back here, you see, I think their brain is in their buns until they become teenagers. The, the brain starts back here. It was amazing how intelligent they suddenly became, all right? But now stay with me. In the biblical world, in the biblical world, when did a boy or a girl become an adult? Answer, age 12. Age 12. Question. Do you think dad was taking the rod to his children when they were 12, 14, 15, 16 years old? I seriously doubt it. You say, all right, you had four sons. I have four sons. You spanked them when they were little. I spanked them when they were little. Not a lot, but I did. When did you stop spanking them? Well, you can talk to any of the four. None of them has a memory of a spanking after they were 10 or 11. Now, did I continue to discipline them as teenagers? Yes, because I loved them. But I believe when they are teenagers, they really should be. Listen to me, and there's a bunch of them around here. I think you ought to teach, treat, teach teenagers like young adults. I'm going to treat them like they're babies or not babies. I'm going to treat them as responsible young men and young women, and therefore the better way to get their attention, I think, in our day, in addition to the rebuke, is the restriction. But here's the bottom line. If you love your kids, you will give them discipline. Number four, you love your kids by looking at them. Your eyes outside of your mouth are one of the most powerful devices you have for communicating to your children. And your eyes can say to your kids, I am disappointed in you. And your eyes can also say to your kids, I love you, and I am so very, very proud of you. And so you love them by the way that you look at them. Number five, you love them by touching them. Ecclesiastes 3.5 says there's a time to embrace. Now, let me be very specific here. Dads, God's blessed you with precious daughters in a good, healthy way. You hold them. You hug on them. You kiss on them. Why? Because God designed little girls with a need for male affirmation. And his plan is that they get it first and foremost from their daddy. So you love on those little girls. Moms, I got a word of encouragement for you. God blessed you with boys, and then they become teenagers. You keep loving on them and hugging on them and kissing on them. Now, I know they'll push back for a season. They'll do all that kind of junk, but they'll come back around about the age of 19 or 20, and they'll want all that loving and hugging again. But I even learned this. A teenage boy. A teenage boy will let his mom kiss him in the morning when she takes him to school if she'll just do it in the floorboard of the car. I mean, he will. Because he wants that kind of roughhouse affection from his dad, but he wants that loving, tender affection from his mom. But God designed our kids to be touched. Number six, this is the ouch one. You love your kids by spending time with them. You love your kids by spending time with them. Now listen to this. Focus on the family took a survey about 20 years ago. I saw a secular survey about five years ago. Nothing has really changed. On average, on average, five-year-olds spend 25 to 35 minutes a week in quality time with their daddy, but they spend 20 to 25 hours a week with a TV or what we now refer to as technological babysitters. Technological babysitters. One more time, 25 to 35 minutes a week with dad, 20 to 25 hours a week with a TV or a technological babysitter. That may explain this. Reader's Digest took a survey of four and five-year-olds, and they asked them this question. If you had to choose to give away either your daddy or your TV, which would you vote to give away? And 33%, one in three said, I would rather give away my daddy than I would my TV. 
One man, in reflecting upon his childhood, sat down and wrote this out to his parents. Somehow, it made it into a local newspaper. You didn't take care of me. You sent me to daycare. You didn't feed me. You sent me to McDonald's. You didn't study with me. You bought me a computer. You didn't talk to me. You bought me a stereo. You did not look at me. You bought me a TV. You did not play with me. You bought me toys. Now that I'm grown and you are old, why should I come and see you? I don't even know who you are. And love is a beautiful four-letter word, but sometimes I think we spell it best this way, T-I-M-E. Number seven, you love your kids by listening to them. James chapter 1 and verse 19 says, be swift to hear, which means what? Put away your iPad, set aside your phone, turn off the TV, listen to me, eye to eye, ear to ear, heart to heart. And by locking in in that kind of a way, you're saying to your children, I am here not to talk. I am here just to listen. And you love them well by listening to them. Number eight, you love them well by blessing them rather than cursing them. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Your words. You ever stop to think what it's like to be a child? Here's some of the things they hear coming out of the mouth of mom and dad. I've been compiling a list over the years, and here's where it stands as of this morning. And let me just say this before I read this list. I have to confess some of these things on this list are here because I know they came out of my mouth directed toward my children. So just see if you recognize any of these particular phrases. Put that down. Stop that right now. Shut up. I don't care what you're doing. Come here right now. Listen to me. Give me that. Don't touch that. Go away. Leave me alone. Can't you see I'm busy? Not like that, stupid. Boy, that was really dumb. Can't you do anything right? Well, you'd lose your head if it wasn't screwed on. Hurry up. We don't have all day. What's the matter with you? Can't you hear anything? I don't know what I'm going to do with you. And parents, those words don't bless. They curse. They don't build up, they tear down. And you listen to me, don't you ever underestimate the power of your words to shape your children's destiny and who they become. I was speaking a few years ago in a church, and after the service, a 65-year-old man came up to me, and he said, Brother Danny, can I share my testimony with you? And I said, well, I'd be happy to hear your testimony. He said, well, let me share first of all, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. I also went through a number of failed marriages, and I want to tell you, they were my fault. But five years ago, when I was 60, I met Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and my, the last five years of my life have been wonderful. But before that, train wreck, disaster, and I hurt some really nice ladies. And then he said, and I don't blame anybody, I, I, made, I made the bad choices and the dumb decisions, but then he said this, I'll never forget it. He said, but you know, Brother Danny, I listened really well to what you said this morning, and I, I just immediately went back to my childhood. And when I think back to when I was a little boy, all I can really remember my daddy saying to me were things like this, boy, you can't do anything right. Boy, you're just downright dumb. Boy, you will never grow up to amount to anything. And he said, isn't it crazy, but I grew up to be exactly what my daddy said I would be. But then he got a smile back on his face, and he said, but five years ago when I met Jesus, I got a new daddy. And my new daddy loves me, and my new daddy believes in me. And he said it, I never heard anybody else say it this way. He said, my new daddy thinks I can do things. 
He says, you know, Brother Danny, it really does matter what you think your daddy thinks about you. Very quickly, number nine, you love your kids by having fun with them. By having fun with them. I've often been asked, can you boil down your thinking about being a parent? And I say, yeah, I can do it in two sentences. Number one, teach your children that Jesus is the most wonderful thing in all the world. And number two, have fun with them. And that's the whole thing right there. Teach your kids that Jesus is wonderful and just have fun with them. Make, make your house a fun house. Yeah, I know what will happen. Uh, kids will come over and they'll drink your drinks and eat your chips and watch your TV and park in your parking lot and break stuff. I understand that. I understand that. And I, again, some of you parents, y'all drive me nuts. You're like, well, Brother Danny, I, I've got like this, this fourth century vase or fourth generation vase in my house. And I mean, it's a, it's a keepsake. Well, then fine. Stick it in the box and put it in the attic. If you're worried about it getting broke, stick it in a box, put it in the attic. When your kids grow up, get it back out. But then here's what will happen. They'll grow up, they'll get married, and guess what happens to kids who get married? They have what? Grandkids. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. So here come the grandkids. So you've got to put the thing back in the box, put it back in the attic. You'll die, and then they'll find it one day, and then they'll decide what to do with it. You, you, you don't think those things are important. I don't think they're important. A broken vase is nothing compared to a broken life. I'll shatter every vase in my house if it will keep my kids loving me and coming. Listen, here's the good news, too. When they grow up, if they like the way you raised them, they'll bring the grandkids back. But we have students at my school that hardly ever take their kids to go see grandmama and granddaddy, and it's sad that they don't. Just make that house a fun place to be. All right, very quickly, and I'll finish up. Number 10, let them go and develop their wings as you nudge them out of the nest. Let them go and develop their wings as you nudge them out of the nest. Here's, I got this one figured out. God gives you your kids for about 20 years. You pour your life into them so that, now listen to me, so that when you're not around anymore, and it's just them and the Lord, they'll be okay. That's the goal of parenting. Pouring your life into your kids so that when you're not around, and it's just them and Jesus, they will be okay. Number 11, love your kids by admitting when you're wrong and ask for forgiveness. Love your kids by admitting when you're wrong and ask for forgiveness. There's seven wonderful words in English that could go today in restoring a lot of broken relationships, maybe even in this church, but certainly in churches all across America. You say, what are those seven words, Danny? I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I was wrong. Will you forgive me? What word is not in those seven? The word but. I'm sorry, but. I was wrong, but. Forget it. Just, just shut it down because by inner, uh, putting that word but in there, you're trying to negate your apology. You say, Danny, did you ever apologize to your boys? All the time because I did stupid stuff. Don't you think they thought less of you? No. Your kids will always think more of you when you admit when you make a mistake and ask for their forgiveness. Finally, number 12, you love your kids by introducing them to a perfect parent. Introducing them to a perfect parent. You say, Danny, I can't be a perfect parent. I know that. Neither can I. Now, we can be good parents. We can be great parents. But you see, the key is every one of us has been made by God with a need for a perfect parent, a perfect heavenly father. I finish with the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. What turned my, my, my wife's life around? What turned her around from being a broken, shattered little girl to the beautiful, radiant, godly woman that she is. I'll tell you exactly what happened. It was a Sunday morning just like this. First Baptist Church, Fairburn, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. 
That morning, the pastor invited people at the end of the service to give their heart to Jesus. And my wife says it this way. That morning, I gave my heart to Jesus, and he gave his heart to me. And God became my perfect heavenly father. And if you met my wife and you were to say to her, Charlotte, what was the most wonderful thing about getting saved, knowing all your sins are forgiven? And she would say, that's wonderful, but it wasn't the most wonderful for me. Oh, I know, it's knowing that when you die, you go to heaven. And she would again say, that's wonderful too, but it wasn't the most wonderful for me. So you might say, well, then what was the most wonderful thing about getting saved? And she would tell you, when I got saved, I got a new daddy. And my new daddy loves me. And my new daddy made a promise to me that he has honored all of my life. You'll know the promise. It's found in Hebrews chapter 13. And let me tell you, it's a precious precious promise for all of us. But to a little orphan girl, I'm telling you, it's off the scale. Because God says there in his word, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And brothers and sisters, friends, that promise is true for all of us. All you have to do is ask him through his son, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for the wisdom that is there. And I thank you, Lord, that indeed we can have a relationship with a perfect heavenly father through a relationship with his son, you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you that you are indeed the kind of father who will love us forever with a perfect eternal love. And I thank you, Lord, that that promise that you made so real in my wife's life is real in my life as well. No matter where I go, no matter what I do, you have promised and you have honored it. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lord, we all have a need for a perfect father just like that. And how we thank you that through the gospel, we indeed can enter into that kind of relationship. Now, Lord, help us likewise to be really good parents following in the example of our perfect father. Help us, Lord, not only to tell our children that we love them, help us, Lord, to show them that we love them, that they may indeed know and feel I am greatly loved by mom and dad, just like I am greatly loved by my heavenly father. It is in his name, the Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.